On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may all be seated. Y'all, this morning we will be in Esther chapter 6 this morning, uh, but before I do that, um, I want to pray, and then I'm going to start in Luke chapter 8. I'm going to take Luke chapter 8 and put that as a blanket over Esther chapter 6. Uh, just a few announcements this morning. Uh, on December the 5th, that's a Sunday, we'll be taking up our Lottie Moon uh, Christmas offering. The Lottie Moon Christmas offering is uh, every dollar that comes into that offering goes right back out to foreign missions. And so uh, there's no admin uh, money that's taken out of that. Every single cent that comes in goes to uh, the International Mission Board and then goes uh, to our missionaries around the world. So please uh, mark your calendars for that. Begin to, to pray to see uh, what God would have you give for that, um, that offering. Also, on December the 8th, that's three days later, is our business meeting. That's where we will vote on our church budget for the 2022 year. So please mark your calendar. That's December the 8th. That's where we'll be voting on the church budget. And last, um, we are in the process of searching for a youth pastor, and we have a committee ready for that, and so that will be presented at that uh, business meeting as well. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump into Esther chapter 6 this morning. got to come this morning, as Paul says, with uh, much fear and trepidation. I want to herald your word and be honest, um, be truthful uh, with your word. I pray that it wouldn't be my words, but it would be your words onto uh, the people's hearts. So I, I pray and ask that of you this morning. God, I pray that you would continue to lead us and guide us as we've been over these last several months praying for a youth pastor. Even this morning, as there's many youth here in this room, God, we pray for them. We know that this is a dark world, a scary world, that uh, Satan would want to go after them um, and to distract them and pull them away from uh, the things that you would have for them. So even now, I pray for them, God. But I pray for that uh, person that you would have for us, that you'd pre be preparing them for us. And as we've been praying us for them, that you would bring the right person uh, to us at the right time. They'd have a love for you and a love for students. They'd have a love for you and a love for uh, lost people. So lead us, God. I pray for that committee that's being put together, that they would uh, just seek you uh, with all their hearts, minds, um, for discernment as they will go through many resumes to see who it is who would be the right person uh, for such a time as this. So we ask uh, that you pour out your wisdom upon that that group of men and women, as they will begin to search for uh, uh, the youth pastor that you have for us. God, I pray for us now, as we come into this point in the service, we look at your word, your in 
inspired and errant and fallible word that's been given to us to help us become more like your son. So if there's someone here that does not know you, that's the first step in obedience, that they would surrender their will and their lives over to your care. For us that have done that, God, I pray that you would use this word this morning to encourage us, to motivate us to become more like you. So lead us, guide us, give us great hope this morning, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. If you are uh, in your Bibles, go to Esther chapter 6, but uh, we'll be starting in Luke chapter 18. I'll let you get to Esther chapter 6, but I want to read this one thing. I think God is using this week and this study time in my own life. Um, I've been really wrestling with and uh, wrestling with the Lord with this idea of prayer. Uh, and in my own prayer life, I, I'm not saying I have a, the greatest prayer life, but in my prayer life, I, I can often get discouraged. Anyone else in that boat? Like praying and praying and praying, and it seems like the very things I'm praying for, uh, God is answering in the reverse order. Um, just in the last few weeks, some of the things I've been praying for people in our church and in my job as a counselor, it seems like God is working in reverse order. And I've been really discouraged in my prayers. I just want to be honest in, with that. that. I love the Lord. I, I uh, study God's word. But to be honest, we, if we're all honest with ourselves, we can become discouraged, correct? We can really become discouraged in our prayer life. Because it seems like God doesn't hear us. And I was pondering on this verse and the thoughts of this verse this week. And that's going to push us to Esther chapter 6. Because I wonder if this was true about Mordecai. I wonder if this was true about Esther. If they were praying for the people of God. Remember where we're at in Esther is that God was going to use Esther to bring deliverance to his people. And we're in the part of the story, it looks really bleak, it looks really grim that, that God's going to do any of that. Matter of fact, it looks like God's going to do the exact opposite of that. And yet Jesus says to his disciples, I believe he says this to his disciples because they were in a place of discouragement as well. Luke chapter 18 verse 1, he says this. And he, Jesus, told them, his disciples, you would think of anybody on the planet that wouldn't be discouraged, it'd be the disciples. Think of all the things that the disciples got to see firsthand. I mean, unless you're in the room and you've seen someone raised from the dead, the disciples got to see that. Unless you've seen uh, water turned into wine, unless you've seen someone walk on water, these are the things the disciples actually got to see, not just hear about. You think if there's anyone on the planet that wouldn't be discouraged, it would be them. But they were in a place of discouragement. And he says to them, tells them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray, he says to them. Always pray. But then he says this right after that. Always pray and what? Not lose heart. Don't become discouraged. And I want to offer that to us this morning. I want to offer that to myself 
this morning, not because I've arrived, because I'm right in the midst of it. And I would guarantee if we took a poll this morning, many of you are right in the midst of praying and not seeing God answer our prayers the way we'd want him to. So I'd say this to us this morning, let's pray and not lose heart. Because now we can go to Esther chapter 6 and see why is it or how is it that we can pray and not lose heart. That's what this whole book of Esther's been about. This one word, the providence of God. The providence of God simply means this. That God both sees in the past, the present, and the future. He sees all things at all times. But he not only sees those things, he is active in the midst of those things. Wherever we are in our prayer life, it seems that we can be discouraged. We can believe because God's word tells us this to be true. God sees it and God is active in it even when it doesn't appear to be. I said a few weeks ago, God's providence is like this. It's like a tapestry. That God is weaving all these things together. And, and when we look, we see the backside of the tapestry. It looks like a chaotic mess. And, and maybe that's where you're at in this moment. Life to you, life to me, looks like a chaotic mess as we look at it. And, and here's the promise. I don't know if you or I or we, the church, will ever get to see the backside of the tapestry here on this side of eternity. It, it may be from now to the day you breathe your last breath, my last breath, that it will always seem chaotic. But we can hold God and God's word to be true. That God is working all things out for good. Now, it's hard to hold on to. It's been hard for me this week to hold on to that. Hearing the things that I've heard just, this, just in one week. Friday morning, I was talking to one of my closest friends. And I was driving to work, and sometimes, most of the times on my way from here to Nashville, from here to, to Franklin, I mean, COVID was nice when there was no traffic. I mean, COVID's over. So it took me two hours to get to work one day, which is pretty awesome. That's sarcasm at its finest. Uh, but on Friday, I was going to work, and I decided I'm not going to turn the radio on. I'm not going to listen to a sermon. I'm just going to sit in the quietness of my car. And I wasn't going to pray. I, I was going to do my best not even to think. Just get to work and get on with my day. As I began to, to drive, I, I got to 840 where the castle is, and this weight fell on me, the weight of pain. My pain, your pain, other people's pain, it was like someone kicked me in the stomach. And I began to say out loud in my car as I'm driving, out loud, I must have looked like a lunatic, God, what's the point of prayer? What's the point in this? Not I, I want to ride my car off the road, that kind of what's the point, just 
What is the point? And then I was talking to my dearest friend, and all of a sudden, my emotions took over. And I just began to weep for my pain, for your pain. But I began to think, God, just take away the pain. That was Friday, Saturday. I wake up this morning, the pain is still there. I woke up at 6.30 and I began to pray, God, take away the pain. And God began to remind me of this passage of what I've been studying, this idea that God is in the midst, even in our pain. And though I don't see it, though I don't understand it, though I don't get it, I have to hold on to something. I'll become pretty hopeless. So this morning I come with what I said in my prayer with fear and trepidation because I'm trying to hold on to hope. And not my hope, not your hope, but Christ's hope. That God can work even in the pain as long as the pain lasts. And there's no guarantee I'll wake up tomorrow and the pain will be gone. There's no guarantee I'll wake up on Friday and the pain will be gone. There's no guarantee I get to Christmas and the pain is gone. But I have to hold on to the simple truth that God sees it, God knows it, and God is active on my behalf and your behalf and the behalf of this church. Or I'm hopeless, and so are you. It's like this. This morning as I was walking over here, I was reminded of this illustration about the providence of God. It's much like the wind, is it not? You cannot see wind. But you see its full effects and you can feel the wind. I'm praying this morning for us as a church that we may not ever see it, but we'll feel it and feel its effects, that God is working on our behalf, even if it doesn't feel that way. So I want to look at this passage this morning. I want to look at four things from this passage about how God is at work. Passage is broken into four sections. About how God is at work, even when it seems as if he's not. Verses one through three is God's godly touch. Verses four through six is God's godly timing. Seven through 11 is God's godly intervention, and lastly, 12 through 14 is God's godly warning. So let's look first at God's godly touch. Remember where we had left off in the passage in the book of Esther. This is the turning point of the book of Esther. If you mark in your Bibles, mark the turning point is chapter 6. Up until chapter 6, it looks pretty bleak for the people of God. That the people of God had disobeyed God. They had remained in captivity here in this province. And God has been wanting to deliver his people, even though they've been disobedient to his people. And God's been at work behind the scenes to make sure that his promise to deliver his people would come to fruition. That is the promise of God. 
We'll see that again this morning. God's promise has always been to deliver us. That's what happened right after the fall in Genesis 3. God made a promise that we would be delivered from the bondage of hell and slavery. He made that promise, and he's been at work all through the while to make sure that you and me and his people are delivered from this bondage. And yet we'll see that these men and women must not have felt like God's hand was at work. And yet we know that God in chapter 1 was preparing God, God was preparing to put a woman in place, Esther, to bring this about. Fast forward. We see, and where we left off last week was uh, that Esther had been presented in front of the king to say to the king, hey, I want to throw a party and I want to ask something of you. The ask is that you would deliver my people. That's the ask. We're going to get there in a in, in, in several weeks after we get through Advent. But remember where we're at, at the end of chapter 5, there's this wicked man named Haman who's been at work all the while. And Haman hated the Jews. Remember, he hated the Jews because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. And, and he said to the king, hey, king, I want to kill the Jews. I want to kill all of them. And the king stamps approval and says, all right, let's do it. Let's kill all of them. All five million of them Let's take care of them. And then we get to end of chapter 5. Haman sees Mordecai at the gates again. Mordecai doesn't bow down. And this rage, this resentment in Haman's heart festers so much so that he goes and says, hey, I want this guy to die. We're going to make a 75-foot pole and we're going to impale this man or crucify him on this pole. That's where we leave chapter 5. So now there's this pole in the middle of the city that somebody's going to die on, and the question is, where is God? Where is God in all of this? We've been asking that question each week. And now God's going to begin to reveal more and more of his sovereign hand. So it pleased Haman is where we left off. He had the gallows made. And then it says, you would think that's the evening. They're, remember, they had just walked out of a party. He sets this in motion, and it says this. On that night, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the books of memorable deeds and the chronicles, and they would read before the king. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigdathan, Teresh, two of the king's units who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on the king. And the king said, what honor has, or distinction has been made or bestowed upon Mordecai for this? And the king's young men, the, those who were attending that said, night said nothing. So the first thing that we see is God's godly touch. And we can read that passage and simply think, Hey, this king had a lot going on. He was the king. And so his mind may have been racing with all that he had to do in the kingdom, all the things that had to be taken place. But we can be assured it's God's touch that kept him awake that night. That God was doing something behind the scenes to prepare this king for what he wanted 
to happen in and then through the king. It's God's touch that kept him awake. Not only was it God's touch that kept him awake, it was God's intervention of how he was going to stay awake or how his desires were to get back asleep. It says he gave orders to bring the books of memorable deeds of the Chronicles to be read before the king. So the king's greatest idea is, hey, I want to fall back asleep. So let's take this book of Chronicles or all these memorable deeds. It'd be like reading your um, tax return. Unless you love numbers, I do not. I start reading numbers, I get real hazy real fast. And so the king's idea is, hey, let's not bring in a great book to read. Let's bring in something really boring. Anyone ever done that? Like you want to get to sleep? You're like, hey, I'm gonna, I'll start with the book of Chronicles. That'll put me back to sleep. That's what the king had in mind. Well, here's God's hand in that. Of all the chronicles of the history of the Persian Empire, that the king and the king's people could have chose, he chose the book that had the story of Mordecai in it. Coincidence? I think not. It's God's touch, even on the book that would be pulled off the shelf and where it would be open to, that the men that were attending to the king would begin to read. And what did they read? Remember what happened a few chapters before. Remember Mordecai had been sitting at the gate. And what did Mordecai hear? That these two men that were inside the kingdom, inside the right-hand men, the eunuchs of the king, had wanted to plot the king's demise or an assassination attempt. And remember, Mordecai overheard it. And when Mordecai reports that assassination plot who? To Esther. And Esther reports it to the king. And the king finds wind about it and comes out and it's to be true. Then we start chapter 3. Remember what happened in chapter 3. We would think that what would happen, it would have been Mordecai that got put into a place of exaltation. But it was this wicked, wicked Haman. Now what you have to do is understand how far chapter 3 is from chapter 6. We read it, we can read it in one sitting. This is four or five years later. Anyone ever felt like that? Praying and hoping and yet not seeing the activity of God for years? But if you look at the character of Mordecai, not one complaint is ever recorded. All that we see Mordecai doing is day in and day out going to the king's gate. Remember what the king's gate was. That was his office. Over and over Mordecai is just being faithful to God regardless of his circumstances and regardless of the outcome. Never once complaining that he didn't get a reward. And I was thinking about that this week in my own journey with the Lord. I was thinking to myself, how often am I praying and then I get upset with God that God has not given me what I want when I want. I get discouraged. I went back to Luke 18 Pray and don't become discouraged. Mordecai for me this week has been a place, a man of, a hero for me. And then it says this, we see God's touch. God touches the mind and the heart of the king. He's reading this, he comes to that place that Mordecai had saved his life and he asked this question. 
to the young men, hey, what has happened or what honor, what distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Because it would have been written in the book. It's what history tells us. When the, the king was to bestow distinction or honor onto a person, that would have been recorded in these books that he was reading. So he would have read, Mordecai saved my life, and this was what was given to him. But he gets to the section that Mordecai has saved his life, and there's been no honor bestowed to him. And he says, hey, where's that part of the book? And the king's attendants say, nothing was done for him at all. That's God's touch. Now we see God's timing, verse 4 through 6. Nothing had been done. We see God's hand in the midst of all this. Now we see God's timing. Remember the king had been up all night pondering what was going on in his kingdom. We see here that Haman had been up all night as well, eager to kill this man Mordecai. And it says in verse 4, And the king said, Who is in the court? There must have been some commotion outside of his bedroom that the king heard and it says Haman had just entered into the outer courts of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hung on the gallows that he had prepared for him so here's Mordecai comes into the courtroom of the king with what on his mind to kill Mordecai he gets up early in the morning we know this in history to be the first in the the presence of the king, to say to the king, hey, there's that guy Mordecai at your gate. I want to start with him, because you've already given me promise to kill all the Jews. Let's start with that man. It's basically his request before the king. Of all the people in the kingdom that could be in the outer courts to see the king first, who is it? Amen. God's timing. Even when we don't see God at work, God is at work, and he has the perfect timing. It says this, uh, he had just entered the court to speak to the king, to prepare the gallows. And then those young men that had just said, hey, nothing had happened to Mordecai, say to them, it's Haman, your right-hand man, he is standing in the courts. And the king said to him, let him come in. Remember that the king always was seeking advice from other people. So Haman came in and said to the king, or the king said to him, what shall be done to the man who the king delights in and honors? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight in to honor more than me? So here Haman goes into the court with this plot to kill Mordecai and the king because of God's timing. The king says to Mordecai, hey, what should be done for the man that I delight in. Of all the people that could have come before the king first, it's God's time to put Haman there first, a prideful man. And he says to himself, is what Haman, the word says, he said in his heart, Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, Basically, he thinks he's talking about him. Who else would the king want to honor is what the text literally says. Who who else would the king want to honor? So if he wants to honor me, this is what I or how I want to be honored. Let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, 
and on whose head the royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one the king, most notable officials, and let them dress the man who the king delights to honor. Let him lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man the king delights in. So here's Haman, the wicked man, says to the king, Hey, basically, let's honor him as if he were the king. Put the royal robe on him, get his royal horse, put the crown on the horse to let everyone see who it is, and then let's throw a ticker tape parade before all the people that all the people would honor him. You can see the pride in this wicked man, but it's God's timing to put this wicked man in front of the king that the king would hear this plot. And now we see God's godly intervention. God's timing set Haman in front of the king with all this to be bestowed on him. And then the intervention is that Haman would say to the king, hey, let's exalt this man. Me is basically what he says. And then in verse 10, we see the Lord's intervention. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. I wonder what happened in that moment. I, I just wish I was in the courtroom that moment. Like here it is, Haman is saying, hey, let's do all this. Let's put this man in front of all these people to get all this glory. And then the king says, yeah, let's do it. But let's not do it for you. Let's do it for that Jew you hate. If that's not God's intervention, I don't know what is. I wonder if the blood went out of his face that moment. I wonder if his knees quaked. I wonder what happened to Haman in that moment. So the king says to Haman, hey, all that you just said to me, that's a great idea. But it's not for you. It's for someone else. And you go do that to the man you hate. How often does God do that to us? So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights in. We see God's touch on the king. We see God's timing and bringing Haman before the king. We see God's intervention through a wicked man and his plot to become more prideful, to be put onto his most hated enemy. Now we look at God's great warning. After the party, after the ticker tape parade, all that had taken place, Look at verse 12, and I could just teach on this one verse this morning. After all this had been done to Mordecai, it says then, in verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. And we can read that and just think, oh, he returned to the king's gate. No, he took all that had just happened to him, the royal robe, the horse, the party, the parade, all that had been bestowed on him. He said to himself, let me go back to what God had called me to, just working a normal job. I don't know about you, but if someone throws me a party, I'm taking a few days off. 
I'm just saying. I might not ever go back to work. But here is the heart of Mordecai. I'll do and be faithful to God because God's been faithful to me. He doesn't ask for a pay raise. He doesn't ask for a promotion. He simply gets done with the party, with the parade, all that's been bestowed on him, and goes back to his ordinary job. Again, I could just teach all morning on that one passage. But now there's a warning that comes to Haman. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. Haman said to his wife and his friends, remember that his wife and his friends were the very people that said to him, hey, hang hang him on the gallows. Go get this 75-foot pole and hang him on there. Just 24 hours later, here's their response. Then his wise men and his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had been preparing. We see God's warning. Now it's tucked away in verse 12, of verse 13, excuse me. His wise men and his wife said to him, Hey, Mordecai, you've fallen before this Jewish man. Because of this Jewish man, you'll never be able to overcome him. Now what's tucked away in there and what we read is the Jewish people. In your Bible, cross out the word people and write the word seed. The Jewish seed or the promised seed. Now when the readers of Esther would have been reading this book, they would have been automatically reminded of Genesis chapter 3. Remember what Genesis chapter 3 says. Genesis chapter 3 talks about the seed of a Jewish woman that will crush the enemy of the Jewish people. They would have been in a moment of hope and promise. Because remember, they're in exile. And now they're reading and they're being reminded that God is going to hold to his promise that he will deliver his covenantal people because he loves them and cares for them and cherishes them. They were been reminded of Genesis chapter 12. Remember Genesis chapter 12 is the promise that God gave to Abraham. That in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, God said to Abraham, hey, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who what curse you, I will curse. And now what they read, hey, because he's of a Jewish descent or the Jewish seed, You'll never be able to overcome him because, not because of him, but because of what? The promises of God. I would say and submit to us this morning, church, if you are a believer, you are of the seed of God. You are his covenantal people. And if you remember back to our series in Genesis, God made a covenant or God made a promise to his people and we are part of that promise today and God never goes against his promises ever and so we can be reminded this morning 
even when we get to the place of losing heart in our prayer life, even when it looks like God is not active, we can be reminded that God made a promise to His people. Think just for a moment. You turn to the book, and you don't have to this morning. You turn to the book of Malachi. Well, in one page represents 400 years of silence from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, by God's grace on us, we'll never live 400 years. But could you imagine as God's holy people, God being silent, not a word from God to his people for 400 years? But in God's perfect timing, Matthew chapter 1 occurs. God remembered his promises to his people and sent his son, Jesus, to redeem them. So I don't know where you're at. I know where I'm at this morning. And I know in this moment in my own life, it feels as if the Lord is silent. I have to go back to the promises of God. I've got to go back to the promise that Jesus made to his disciples and he makes to us this morning. He made us two promises right before he ascended back to his father. Two beautiful promises that I tend to forget. The first one is what? that he would send a comforter for us, the Holy Spirit. So we can hold to the promise that even in his silence, we have a comforter. The next promise that he made to us is this. Really three promises. The next promise is this, that he'd never leave us or forsake us. I got to hold God to that. He's distant and quiet. But I think the greatest promise of the three promises that we see later on in the text is this. He sends us the Holy Spirit. He's with us in the silence. But the greatest promise He leaves us is He's coming back for us. Amen? I've said it over and over. If you're a believer, this is the only hell you'll ever experience. And I know this morning, for me at least, when God is silent, it feels like hell. How come? Because this is what makes hell, hell. The absence of God. It's not fire, it's not a pitchfork, it's not screaming, it's the absence of God himself. And so what we can be assured is this, as his covenantal people, He sent us the Holy Spirit to bring us comfort. He will never leave us or forsake us. He'll return and come get us, take us home. May we hold to that promise this morning. Let us this morning see God's touch somewhere in our life. Let us be reminded that it's God's timing, not our timing. God will always intervene. 
And the great warning comes with a great promise. God will return. That's a warning if you're an unbeliever. He will return. And in his return, he says this, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That's a warning. If you do not know Christ, he will return and you must give an account for you. But the promise within that warning is this. If you are a believer, he's coming to take you home. Let us pray this morning.